0: Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest this week is a long, long, long time legend in the, in our industry, Ivan Arce, out of Buenos Aires, Argentina, well known for uh, his, his work over the years in the penetration testing trenches, uh, uh, credited with the creation of Core, Core Impact, one maybe the first ever penetration testing platform and exploit uh, tool, Ivan is now CTO at Quark's Lab. Uh, You and I have had constant conversations over the years, including some epic uh, uh, disagreements and arguments about security industry industry issues over the years. So I'm really, really looking forward to this. Let's start off with uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina. One of the things that struck me over the years is how many really, really talented, skilled exploit writers, security researchers, uh, even companies, uh, very well-established companies that came out of the Argentina hacking scene. What is in the water in Argentina? Why Do you have an opinion on why we've seen this concentration of really skilled security researchers coming out of, of your place?
1: Well, first, first, thanks, uh, Ryan, for the introduction, and it's uh, good to talk to you again after all these years. And I didn't think we had so many disagreements about the industry, but anyway, we can get to that later. You're just always
0: trolling me, that's the thing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a fine line between trolling and trying to make something people think about the different, the complex issues, right? But uh, we can talk about that as well. But regarding Argentina, uh, yes, as you know, I have uh, I have an opinion about what's going on in Argentina and why there are so many people that are good in, in at infosec and just particularly at the offensive side.
0: Uh, even about 15 InfoSec. years ago, when, 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 when we first met, I actually came down to Buenos Aires and visited your office. And we talked about this years and years and years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an issue. Uh, uh, what tell me tell me why you think you know we've, we've traditionally you know the russians are very good at uh, at their i.t schools atlanta had georgia tech so there you see this concentration there why this uh, very noticeable concentration of really quality skills out of argentina
1: so the, in my opinion it's a combination of things that that come from the from the past from around let's say this the 80s uh uh, and and those things are a combination are the following combination on one hand we have very good uh, education public education in uh, in uh, science and math uh, in the past
0: at the university uh, level or even at the lower at the
1: university at the university level and even at the, at lower levels at the high school secondary school mm-hmm. uh, at the university level the we probably had the well not probably. Argentina had the first uh, computer in Latin America for um, uh, scientific computing back in 1962. It was the first. Uh, it was a, a British computer that was imported, and there was like a, a, an emerging uh, interest and culture uh, around uh, computers back then at the academic level. Okay. But the public school uh, was very good. And then you can combine that with the emergence of uh, home computers. So kids that are my first computer, I got my first computer when I was 12. I wasn't living in Argentina, but many people from my generation got their first computer when they were 10, 12, 13 years old, 14 years old. Um, and uh, on the other, so they were. They were curious because uh, teenagers and, and, and kids are very curious. They like to play. They like to discover things. They like to experiment good, good things. They had a relatively good um, uh, uh, formation and, and education in, in things that are closer to um, computers or close to computers, but they did not have a lot of opportunities to express or to expand those uh those skills and those interests Uh, the context the the economic context of the country and also not just the economic context but the the infrastructure and the the it context of the country was very limiting and very very limited and very limiting Uh, for example we had in the in the 80s up until 1990 uh, we have a national telco uh, monopoly a single state-run uh, communications, mm-hmm. telecommunications company,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which in the in, which in 1990s was split, privatized, and split in two. Uh, uh, private company that uh, monopolized the communications in the north side of the country, and another that did the same on the southern portion of the country. The split was at the Buenos Aires, uh, on the Buenos Aires city, so half of the city belong <laughs> to uh, one company the other half belonged to the other company these were two foreign companies Tele, uh, telecom italia mm-hmm. and uh, telefonica of spain so um, so what happened is that uh, in reality the government run uh, monopolistic telco became two private monopolistic telcos And and that created a lot of uh, dynamism in the in the commercial side, but you didn't really have a lot of uh, opportunities to experiment and to learn and to do things uh, and to uh, at a price that you could uh, uh, easily uh, get access to resources. So that is the perfect context for pushing young curious I and mean, smart guys to explore things by themselves
0: right so it's and a com- a combination of the economics uh, the the realities on the ground around where telecommunications were this really uh, 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 above average education system and all that marriage of the, the, all these all these issues and factors married with the curiosity of smart kids kind of pushed this. Uh, groundswell of interest in 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 technology research uh, but yes. I'm, I'm more curious about why it why it went the security uh, area or maybe technology but, in technology research in general in Argentina is very very good but I'm just focusing on the security side of it
1: okay so I will give you an example and I think my example my personal example is uh, it's actually um, Maybe a good indicator. It, 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 I do not like to generalize over, uh, on the basis of personal anecdotes, but this is a podcast, so I can actually do. Whatever. Yeah, we don't fact check. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm
0: not going to fact check
1: you, so go ahead. Right. So, so I started doing security stuff uh, when I was a kid. When I was well, I wasn't such a kid. I, it was probably in the in 1988, 87. Uh, and I started doing that because uh, I, at the time I had a, a, with a friend at the university. I was doing the first year at the university. Um, we created a software development company, which was two guys the, developing software uh, or ad hoc uh, turnkey solutions for small businesses. And, uh, and one of the customers that we had was a major bank, Citibank. And one day my partner came with a modem that uh, was given to him because the bank was throwing it away. And he didn't know what to do with it, so he gave it to me. And I connected the modem to my computer, and I started dialing uh, different places. And this guy also had a paper with a lot of numbers. So I started dialing those numbers to find out what, what what, what was there. And I found, like an X-25 network, and I found uh, like a chat system. I'm, I found many things. So that uh, got my interest in uh, in networks and BBSs and, and communicating using a model. Uh, but I have no access whatsoever to any technical documentation about operating systems, about uh, programming languages. I have no internet access at the time. There was no internet access in Argentina.
0: So basically, you have to learn by yourself,
1: and right? You and you
0: and you also have a language uh, 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 roadblock, because right. I would, I would okay. imagine at the time, as everything is in English, and you're
1: right, you're... exactly. So, uh, so I had to learn by myself all these things, uh, and I learned a lot about. And there was no internet access, so internet. The internet was a place where you could actually obtain information. There was no World Wide Web at the time. It was like a FTP and, and something that was called Archie, which was like equivalent of Google <laughs> these days, uh, sort of. And there was something called Gopher, which was equivalent, which would be the equivalent of a, of a, of a browser. browser right. um, so that's what you use to get information, to, pack, to look for information. <clears throat> and I create... Uh, that uh, kind of information but i have no means to connect to it or i have no means to get access to it so i have to figure out by myself how to do that and in order to do that i have to learn different operating systems i have to learn pro- network protocols i have to learn mm-hmm. uh, how to program uh, or how to develop a program that will uh, look for the information that i wanted all of these things i have to learn by myself because nobody was there to help me do it
0: and this this story you're telling is you is not unique to you i'm pretty sure if i talk to Cesar Cerudo, ariel Futo, uh, yes. all these guys that are really really talented uh, quote-unquote rock stars in our industry the same story they'll tell me
1: my opinion is that, they, that, is that yes, they will tell you the same story, Cesar Cerrudo, Futuransky, Alfred Ortega, all, all, many uh, people from around my time or from my generation in Argentina will tell you that they had the drive, they had the curiosity, but they didn't have the means to access or to get knowledge. Uh, it was not uh, something that they could obtain from the university. There were no classes about that, there were no courses, so they had to do it by themselves. And that uh, motivates uh, your uh, uh, or, or, or incentivizes uh, your thinking about alternative solutions uh, for problems that you face. I think that's the origin of
0: why there are so many good technical people
1: in, mm. for InfoSec in Argentina.
0: I spoke to guys in Romania and some countries that have not been as economically strong as, you know, first world countries. Let's call them, quote unquote, third world countries. Do you think there's a, 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 an element to it as well as just uh, uh, just us kids having to crack software, having to figure out piracy? Right? Piracy is a loaded word, but having to figure out just how to access things that you can't buy because of economic uh, issues uh, also drove you guys in that direction.
1: Yes, definitely. And and I can give you another anecdote that it's uh, not
0: about cracking or
1: pirating, but it's uh, but it's uh, still interesting. Years later, I worked before working on InfoSec. I worked for a computer telephone integration company. Uh, this company would deploy Unix servers that connected data networks on one on one side to telephony networks on the other side. For doing that, they use uh, specific uh, hardware boards that run the specific firmware from a U.S. company. And I was in charge of doing all of this, like from deploying the systems, uh, designing how the system will operate, developing the, the, the software, connecting to the different networks and interacting with different devices on each of the networks. On the telephony network, it would be like a PBX or a central office switch. On the data network, it would be the systems from an enterprise, like a mainframe or a Unix server or whatever. So every time I had a problem, for example, that the the telephony board could not communicate properly with the PBX or with the central office switch, and in Argentina there, there was a large variety of different switches it wasn't like at&t and that's all it was there were switches from ericsson from alcatel from uh, siemens from at&t from like a lot of different vendors so you had this thing that needed to communicate with all of them and nothing worked there were bugs everywhere so when i called support in the us they will ask me who are you Oh, I'm from Argentina. I run, uh, this company small company that is deploying these systems. Oh, right. Argentina, where is that? <laughs> uh, it's in right? Uh, and they would tell me, so they would ask, so how many uh, ports do you have installed there? Ports is like the number of lines, let's say telephony lines that I was servicing. And I would say, well, I have uh, 300 uh, ports installed on this deployment. And they would laugh at me and say, 300, that's nothing. We don't even talk to you. Come back when you have, like, Half a million. Right, right. Right. So I had to solve the problems again myself. I had to reverse engineer the firmware, binary patch it, uh, write it again into the <laughs> into, into the, the chip, and then try to figure out, debug the problem and see if it was fixed. All of these things uh, were done because of uh, a lack of um, technical support for accomplishing that's a legitimate uh, business purposes.
0: Right. So your realities on the ground forced you to think about hacking into these things. Right.
1: Exactly. So the distinction between uh, reversing and pirating the firmware from this vendor in the US that wouldn't even talk to me and actually solving my problem uh, with a legitimate intention was uh, in that moment, to me, it was irrelevant. I
0: need to solve this. They don't help me. I will do it myself that's fa- that's really really fascinating to me so it, it suggests that you guys were at a significant disadvantage however you guys were able to create uh what arguably and and you can tell me if correct me if i'm wrong the very first uh penetration testing platform fitted with exploits that was widely widely recognized as the best of the best at the time um, talk to me about the creation of core Security. Uh, core impact and and how you were able to uh, uh, get this exploit uh, creation exploit uh, platform created and established even with all these difficulties and and um, so, disadvantages.
1: So we started core security in the, I think it was around 1996. Uh, I don't have the exact date, uh, or, but it was, I think it was that year. And we originally started the company, it was uh, five founders, I was one of them. We originally started the company as a consulting services company. We would sell services, uh, penetration testing services, source code reviews, security analysis, architectural analysis, that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, quite know, rapidly, like in, within a very short time, uh, we got uh, a customer from Canada. It was a, a company that was developing a vulnerability scanner. Uh, at the time, it was one of the top three vulnerability scanners that were competing in the market. ISS was number one, and there was Ballista, which is the one that we were uh, subcontracted uh, to develop. And there was another one from a company called Wheel Group that got at, later on got acquired by uh, Cisco. So we were developing this uh, as a contra- as contractors. We had a contract to develop this uh, vulnerability scanner. It, it was like a great experience. I got to know many uh, guys that are all all also uh, very well known today, like uh, Tom petashak Tim Newsham, We all work together uh, at that place. And uh, what we did was develop the uh, vulnerability checks for the scanner so in developing the vulnerability checks uh, very often uh, the distinction between a vulnerability check a remote vulnerability check and an exploit was almost none right if you want to check for a vulnerability on a service on a remote uh, host you can Connect to the service and grab the banner and see match the banner to some uh, database to see if the uh, the service is vulnerable based on what the banner says, what version the service says it's running, or you can actually try to exploit the vulnerability in a controlled manner to verify that it's effectively vulnerable. It doesn't matter what the banner says, right, or what the patch level uh, it says it has, or whether it says it has a patch or not if you can actually exploit the vulnerability then you know for sure that it's uh, vulnerable and uh, and that is very powerful because it gives you no false positives i ran code on this server so you can not doubt that it is vulnerable i actually ran code right so uh, but that that was a bit um uh, uh not dangerous but People that will learn about that will uh, get nervous. What do you mean running code on my on, on my system? What do you mean exploiting the bone? This is just a scanner. Why do you exploit bones? The scanners are not supposed to do that. But that was actually a myth because nobody said that the scanners were not supposed to do that. <clears throat> so we discovered that the disti- sometimes you have to exploit the bug to actually get an accurate result. It doesn't. It, it wasn't sufficient with. Uh, we just checking for banners or things like that. So we started acquiring uh, an expertise on doing these things. <coughs> Sorry, and um, and then we also got a, a another contract for for a well, it was a big five uh, accounting firm in the U.S. I don't know which one. I think it was EY or one of those uh, to develop the uh, tools and exploits for them. I'm talking about the late
0: 90s. Like this. this is pre-impact. You haven't created impact pre- yet. You're just doing software assessments and penetration tests, co- source code right. audits, and just kind of developing uh, internal right. tools.
1: Exactly. But then those internal tools were, we were sub- we were contracted to develop tools for others. And some of those tools included uh, attack tools or ex- and exploits, right? Uh, but these were done on a contract basis, add up. This guy is asking us for vulnerability checks for uh, his scanner. Let's do this and send it, uh, send them to them to him. This other guy is asking us for an exploit for for I don't know bug uh, X. Let's do the exploit for X and send it to him. Uh, so we started acquiring knowledge about the exploitation and about how to do this properly. But we also thought. This doesn't make sense. This is doing this ad hoc uh, tool development for each person does not make sense. There should be a way of uh, abstracting all this complexity and industrializing it to make the life of a developer of penetration testing tools easier and to make the penetration testing practice more efficient. So,
0: so that drove the creation of uh, the, 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 the thinking about creating uh, core that, impact.
1: That started that got us thinking about creating core impact the next thing that happened is that network associates which is mcafee now acquired the vulnerability scanning company uh, that we work for for a bunch of uh so this is secure networks these were secure networks correct so we thought hey wait a minute we've been uh, developing as contractors uh, a product and there's a big security company that it's interested in this kind of thing, and they acquire uh, the company that we work for. Maybe we should think about building our own product, not just selling services. <coughs> so that was the other the other part that was uh, <coughs> the other ingredient that triggered the idea of uh, creating impact.
0: And impact came out around 2000, 2001?
1: Impact was uh, we started to develop it in uh, April 2001, and we no in uh, I think it was in May 2001. We shipped the first version in April 2002. It was uh, beta tested. <coughs> sorry, it was beta tested with a with a a small group of uh, beta testers uh, a few months before that. HD Moore was one of them, and uh, and we demoed. Demo it to many consulting firms in the U.S. Uh, in the month prior to uh, to launching it, including AdStake or the Big Five uh, consulting firms and Garden at the time,
0: and many others. You mentioned HD Moore, who went on to create Metasploit, uh, mm. uh, and, and Metasploit also became very, very popular. Uh, yes. So you guys were there at the very, almost like the pioneers of this. Uh, exploiting platform, uh, creating an exploit platform. At the time, it was somewhat controversial because you were literally uh, uh, creating a tool and putting it in the hands of people uh, with exploits built in uh, to go launch attacks. And, uh, you know, just in a general sense, the technology industry was not quite ready for that at a philosophical level. Uh, Did you experience any sort of pushback from that? And can you talk a little bit about uh, uh the competition at the time between uh core uh what HD More eventually uh pushed out with metasploit and even davitel and immunity with their uh, uh platform yes
1: yes so so there was a lot of pushback yes there were some industry analysts that refused to talk to us because they said and i'm here i'm quoting from memory what you're selling is
0: equivalent to enrich uranium and rich uranium yeah yeah, yeah. people uranium. were people were people were accusing you guys of 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 mm-hmm. selling bullets for guns
1: yes or enrich uranium which is even worse <laughs> <laughs> but and by the way it, it is plutonium not uranium but anyway <laughs> I, I didn't correct uh, this guy this was a security industry analyst that not only refused to talk to us he also sent in an email uh what well, i just said uh, and uh, follow by, I will tell everybody, anybody that asked me not to talk to you. So that's the kind of pushback that we got from some people. Uh, but that, those were analysts. Uh, our idea, original idea is that we would sell the thing to consulting firms uh, because it would be useful for them to make their penetration testing practice more efficient so they can focus on the, on the actual high value uh, uh, services that they could provide higher value services or more value added services, but they, we found quickly within months we found out that the consulting services uh, firms that we demoed this uh, core impact tool, they said, "Oh yeah, that's it. That is great. It's awesome," but they never They never bought it. Why? I don't know why. I suspect it is, it is because they have no interest in making their practice more efficient. Uh, what happened? Is that a few months afterwards like within three months uh, out of the blue some purchase
0: orders from uh, enterprises came in the people who wanted to use it in-house
1: right exactly so now you find so, that there's a
0: market beyond just consulting firms
1: exactly so first it was i think the first one i think it was Symantec, or it was uh, probably the second the semantic was expected because uh, the, the security focus guys were in the beta it right was the second one was NASA, so the, so NASA comes in and, and they call us and they say, hey, I want to buy uh, this thing you're selling. And we said, oh yeah, really, we can do a demo, we can show you. Mm-hmm. No, no, I want to buy, where do I send the purchase order? Really, but we can do a demo if you want. No, where do I send the purchase order? And we said, oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. So there may be a market here. So, and that's how we realized that this was, even though there was pushback and there was, it, it was, uh, The overall uh, market and a big portion of the industry was probably afraid of uh, using actual exploits uh, on their networks. There were some companies that were more uh, forward-thinking and that were less risk-averse, or what they perceive a risk, possibly because uh, the large market, the larger market didn't know really how a vulnerability scanner was built and how it worked when it was efficient but eventually we found out that there was a there was a, a, an enterprise market for a product and that's how it grew <coughs> and regarding the competition it wasn't uh, we didn't perceive it as competition really frankly I mean we had some uh, mostly with David tell and, and immunity we have our back and forth and some uh, discussion and debate uh, in, in public but uh but
0: you still maintain that core was first
1: oh yeah no core there is absolutely no doubt that core was for when uh, first because we did a demo of core impact version one today by tell when he was at At stake in new york so there is no doubt of that there is no doubt of that because hd moore was part of the beta program of uh <coughs> of uh, core impact and later he he developed uh, metasploit later on but but it doesn't really matter if if we were first or not in the case of metasploit it it was actually really helpful because for us because the the aim and the goal of metasploit was different it wasn't an enterprise product it was a research tool that let other people uh, explore and contribute and learn about exploit development and about th- that sort of thing, and it was open source, which our product wasn't. So, so right,
0: was they a- they really helped push push the envelope in the industry uh, for yes. this market.
1: Yes, uh, and and also one thing that we learned and it was interesting is that many people in the security industry and mostly in the offensive uh, side and in the consulting uh, or services side, they were, um, they were mocking or they underappreciated the value of a good UI or a stable uh, graphic system like Windows, which is where, where
0: we built, uh, what we built Impact for. <coughs> right you built impact with this really easy to use GUI that allowed people to it, it was literally point-and-click exploiting
1: right exactly and I think that had a lot uh, that had a lot of a lot to do with the
0: with the with the
1: later success in the in the enterprise market uh,
0: what? Do you do you remember the time in the early days what kinds of exploits were hot at the time because I don't I, I don't imagine it was web app stuff uh, back then
1: No it was it was server side It was server side <laughs> network server-side stuff server side network stuff http probably ftp that sort of thing dns and that sort of thing so basic uh, base services not the up level stuff uh, we did that in for the first, uh, <coughs> I'm sorry, I, I have a cough, terrible cough. We did that for the first um, few years. Uh, the version one of Core Impact also included uh, privilege escalation and, and uh, pivoting or, or whatever they call it now, uh, lateral movement. Lateral movement, uh, And local uh, information gathering uh, or whatever they call it now, like uh, leakage or, or <laughs> I don't know, looking for interesting files and leaking them. <coughs> All of that was included in Impact in the first version. <clears throat> With a limited scope, right? Because it was just a few guys developing it. And we started uh, incorporating client-side attacks in, uh, I think it was in 2004, uh, because we saw that that was the, the next thing that needed to be added, even before web application stuff, client side was more
0: important. Yeah. Right, right, and that's when you started taking aim at the browser and and, and, yes. and drove and drove Microsoft into uh, improving its thing, and then we yes. subsequently saw all the, the new browser war with uh, Firefox and Chrome and so on. And you guys were uh, at the head of that. One of the things that was fascinating to me was alongside all of this, Core had a really amazing research team churning out uh, uh, research and Black Hat talks and DEFCON talks. Um, And people who remember will remember, uh, famously, Core had the best uh, documentation of its disclosures, Uh, Mm. blow-by-blow documentation of its disclosures that was uh, was so funny. You you went into incredible detail about passing information back and forth to vendors. Uh, that that that's a history lesson. But can you talk about what, what the 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 bits of research coming out of Core on the research side, the R&D side, that you're most proud of? Uh,
1: well, uh, I don't know, proud of, but I can tell you how we did it and why we did it, uh, and I can also tell you where the timeline in our security advisory is originated and why we started. Yeah, <laughs> we let's started talk about happening. the timeline
0: because I think there's a, there, there's a fraction of people listening to this podcast that will remember those. I, I, my first introduction to it, I believe it was the MSN, uh, again, client-side bug. It was a Microsoft Messenger at the time, was the big yes. thing. Do you remember That's, that one that forced Microsoft yes. for the first time in its history to ship a mandatory uh, uh, security update for MSN?
1: Yes, that was, that was the one that, uh, that motivated the timeline in the, in the advisories that followed that one. Uh, that, and uh, I think prior to that we also published an advisory about some bug in in, in a very signed uh, PKI um, system. <coughs> and the experience that we went through with both uh, reports motivated us to have a detailed timeline in every advisory to provide more transparency to with whoever would read the advisory to know what happened during the time. from from the moment that we reported the bug to the vendor to the moment that the advisory got published.
0: Uh, it's important time- it, It's important to say. This is the mid-2000s, maybe 2003, 2004. Again, I'm not fact-checking. I don't have a browser open. I'm just going from memory because I was writing these stories at the time. It's important to understand that the, the industry hadn't matured to the point where people were comfortable dealing with uh, vulnerability reports. Microsoft was struggling at the time trying to build out post-TWC uh, their own thing uh, where, where vendors are now today with bug bounty programs and an easy to report system was non-existent at the time you guys were winging it so to speak
1: yes um, but we have been we, we were somehow lucky uh, I guess because uh, we have been repro- finding bugs and reporting them to vendors since around 1996 uh, in fact uh, and some of the first bugs that we reported were uh, in SSH or in Bind, the DNS uh, solution mm-hmm. software of the time. So very, very old stuff. Uh, so we have, and I participated in the reporting in almost every single bug report to the vendors. I was either doing the reporting or uh, being part of the process. And somebody else was doing the report, but I was monitoring the report. So. I had a, by the that time that, I, that it was the, uh, that the report about the MSN uh, bug uh, went out, I had a lot of opinions and experience in, in that and like not only opinions and experience but also stories and scars. So, <laughs> so what happened is that um, we reported this bug and uh, we went back and forth about uh, what was the problem and when it was uh, supposed to be patched. And uh, so eventually we published the advisory and the advisory uh, included proof of concept code. Uh, The bug was about changing your uh, profile avatar in the messenger. And by doing that and putting an image file that that was malformed or that that was especially crafted, you could exploit any of your contacts. Uh, So it was remote and it didn't, Require any <coughs> any direct connection made outside of Messenger. Of course, the communications between uh, different endpoints pass through the Microsoft uh, network, so they could filter at the at, the, at their network. Uh, but so we did this, and uh, and in fact, we have three people from Microsoft visit us in Argentina. They were passing by or they were uh, meeting with somebody else but they went to our office uh, because they were uh, really i would say i i wouldn't say upset but they were uh, they did not understand why we were publishing proof of concept in our advisor in correct our they were advisor, pissed why, they were pissed right uh, so we explained to them that the uh, the reason why we published the proof of concept is because we wanted to help everybody and that was potentially vulnerable to find out if they were actually vulnerable by themselves. Uh, not to depend on somebody else to tell them, but to be able to do it by themselves. And you can tie this to the uh, personal anecdote that I that I told you earlier, when I didn't have any support from the big vendor and I had to figure, thing, figure out things by myself. <coughs> so I put myself in, that, in the shoes of, uh, of me 10 years before I said, well, if I was in this situation, how could I tell if I am vulnerable and I need to do something if the big vendor doesn't talk to me? So in our advisory, we, we care about that and we provide a proof of concept so <clears throat> potentially vulnerable users can check for themselves. But also, the other thing that we explain to them is, you are the vendor of, uh, of the vulnerable software and that's fine, you deserve to be... Um, notified and to be given the opportunity to fix this in time. But there's a whole industry, there's a whole security industry that provides security solutions. Why do we deprive them from providing a security solution to this problem if what they need to provide the solution is a proof of concept? So they can build uh, uh, countermeasures or they can test their idea signatures or they can do in any of a number of things that they could do to help their their customers or or the user base at large so they said oh yeah yeah you're right i think that makes sense i I understand i I, we understand that you don't have a a ill intent that you are doing it because you really believe that this is helpful (coughs) (laughs) so everything was fine so while we were talking And this was like literally simultaneously. While we were discussing this and we were agreeing and everybody was happy because we understood each other, the spokesman of uh, uh, Microsoft Security Research, uh, no, the Microsoft Security Response Center.
0: Yeah, MSRC was telling people like me at the time.
1: The spokesman for, of MSRC was telling people like you that we were irresponsible and reckless.
0: Correct. RIP step two. I've, I rem- I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, Stephen Toulouse, uh, rest in yes. peace, Stephen, one of the nicest guy in the industry. But I remember this like it was yesterday, yes. these long telephone calls uh, uh, just screaming about uh, irresponsible move by Core because you guys were putting out proof of concept code pre-patch. They didn't have an update yet ready. Um, and yeah. even when they shipped the update, uh, there was no automatic updating mechanism to force people to mm-hmm. uh, get that thing. And it was remote and critical and could cause all kinds of major, major problems. And they were not happy at all at the time.
1: Yeah, uh, they were not happy, but they were filtering malicious PNG image files at the server, at the at the cloud, at their cloud. So still there was some protection. But anyway, the the so that event uh, got us thinking oh c- come on we're we're talking we're agreeing on what the th- that this is the right thing that we don't have real intention and so on but at the same time simultaneously uh, some other guy is ba- is bad mouthing us uh, with a journalist maybe we should provide more transparency about what goes on during the uh, reporting process
0: right but you went a ridiculous length with your transparency <laughs> <laughs> well, was that was, was that was that part of your trolling? Um, even back then? No,
1: no, no. Because there were other problems that we experienced. That was just that was just the tip that, uh, that that was what tipped the scales. Right? Uh, there were many other issues that we have in other uh, bug reports with other vendors or we, even with the same vendor. Uh, for example, that they would agree to release a patch on, on a given date, and two days before that date, they would tell us, no, we're not going to make this uh, uh, the release date, and then we'll have to re our publication, and they would do that twice, or three times, or four times. And eventually, uh, you will have to say, okay, enough is enough, we're going to publish this, even if you don't have a patch. But then, if you do that, and you don't tell the story of what happened before, then people may t- may think, oh, these guys are reckless, they are just publishing advisories without waiting for the vendor to issue the patch, and people will not know that the vendor had already failed to deliver three times on the self-imposed deadline. Right? So, things like that uh, kept happening. In another case, uh, a vendor demanded that we reveal to them who was our customer, uh, where we found the bug, who was our customer in order for them to fix the bug. So we said, oh, we found this bug during a a, a penetration test. We found this bug in uh, in your software, and uh, we're reporting it to you so you can fix it. And they wouldn't fix it unless we told them where did we find it and whose license we use. Mm-hmm. And then we could obviously we couldn't do that because we were bound by the, by an NDA. So we had to ask for written permission from our customer to actually tell the vendor that they were uh, the customer, so they could actually issue. Uh, uh, develop and issue the, the patch. And so like that, I have tens of different uh, anecdotes and stories with variations. And so all of this put together made us think that the whole process needed to be more transparent from the start till uh, it gets public. Not just the public part and the technical details, also how the process evolved.
0: Uh, and you guys became famous for your uh, uh, for your transparency in these things it went it went into so much detail which email was sent back and forth I sent the exploit the guy asked me to tell him how the exploit works so I sent him a tool to show him how the exploit works and it just went on and on and on it was like it was like required reading for us at the time just for to to get a feel for what goes into reporting bugs and in in many cases even today not much has changed in that respect uh, I and, and you know I just asked about uh, some of the research you guys are most proud of. I think it it it, it triggered it triggered my um, my interest in looking back at Core just this week when we found out that Absolute Software LoJack system had been hijacked and the agent was um, uh, C twos were embedded by, by you know really high end uh, targeted attackers. You guys were warning about this back in two thousand and eight. Uh, about this LoJack, yes. uh, about this LoJack kit and we're now ten years later, we see it being exploited. Those were those were the types of things Core was pushing out at the time uh, that really pushed the company, uh, you know, at the top of, of of visibility in the industry for some of the work you were doing.
1: Yes, yeah, and uh, it was sort of.
0: Uh, design it, uh, the organizational structure of the
1: company was sort of designed for or, or added, I think adequate for that to happen. <clears throat> because we were developing a, a offensive security product and we tried to follow and we were very strict with the software engineering practices uh, to make sure that it was a quality product. We were also providing uh, security services where we were doing like research and, and learning about technology in the field from very um, high-value uh, customers, uh, Fortune uh, 500 or, or companies that were at the, <coughs> at the state of the art in technology development and adoption, but also we have a dedicated uh, research uh, team that was not in charge of doing research by themselves. They did research by themselves uh, a bit, but their main goal was to coordinate the research that was done by everybody else. So, so there was an organization that was uh, um, built for uh, um, uh, incentivizing uh, offensive uh, research and offensive, offensive thinking throughout the company. So we came up, uh, not? It's not that we came up. Uh, Uh, with all these ideas because it was like the different people that work at the company that came up with different ideas and that had uh, the time to explore them or to or to talk about them to their peers and to uh, brainstorm uh, potential things to do and of course at the at the at the base of this uh, of all of this it was the fact that we have very really really good uh, guys and girls uh, working on these things it was i mean you can have all the all the organizational structure to incentivize and to uh, research and, and offensive thinking and forward thinking but if you don't have the right people to do it then it's not gonna get the uh, you're not gonna get a lot of good results we had we were lucky in, in 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 having really good people working at core over the years and there was also people that left and new people that joined and all the time until <coughs> later on, it was a, a group of really uh, good people at that. Uh,
0: Post core, you went into, and uh, I, I, I'm just going anecdotally from just noticing your work, you went into uh, a foundation in Argentina, and I noticed you were paying close attention to mobile, especially mobile, um, especially Android. On the mobile uh, 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 landscape and uh, now are CTO at Quark's lab so t- talk to me about your post core life and what you're doing now what what's what's interesting to you which areas of research you think is still ripe for for people to put eyeballs at
1: so um... So after Core, after co- I, I wanted to take a break from the industry, I, uh, from security industry. I wanted to do something different. Uh, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do a startup uh, again uh, or if I wanted to go work in security for a company, not in the industry, but just to do like CSO or something like that. Uh, <coughs> but then I also saw <coughs> this is around 2011. But then I also saw and and I saw the trend years before uh, that the infosec was turning into cyber, right? And that's a way to summarize it. But the the fact that um, the nation states and governments and, and and government agencies had increasingly more influence on how the uh, community and the industry works and what they worked on and how they would uh, get resources and what research was done and uh, and so on and so I saw that happening and I didn't like it that much uh, and then I looked uh, back at the country where I'm living and I said oh, so what's going on here, what are these guys doing, what is the government doing here and I talked to a couple of people uh, in, uh, in different government uh, places and they, they looked at me and like they gave me a blank stare so so i said okay so maybe it's a good thing to start some research activities in argentina to like to plant the seed of uh, indigenous research outside of the industry uh, not in the academia in a place where there can be practical uh, cancelled research Uh, that's not in a university, it's not in a research institute that is uh, funded by grants uh, from a research council, but it's also not in a private company that mostly builds and exports uh, services, uh, uh, and in the best case scenario products, to either the US or Japan or Europe and so on. There needs to be something that is more adequate and more focused on what is being done here in Argentina what technology is being uh, adopted here and what are the concerns and the potential risks of that. And it need to be um, financially accessible. It cannot be something that if you want to buy a tool, you have to pay $30,000 because nobody would pay $30,000 here. No. we have, For example, at Core, we have absolutely no customers in Argentina, zero. We have over 1,600 customers of our product. Uh, but none of them were in Argentina, and the product were, was developed in Argentina, so that was uh, a paradox. So,
0: so you, so you were, you were uh, just, just nervous about how the country was exposed in in the midst of this shift to where we started to see right. nation states being very, very active in this APT targeted attack space.
1: Right, and I didn't want to. I, I thought that the way to contribute to help in, in addressing those things, uh, those. Uh, uh, upcoming potential problems was not becoming a cyber policy uh, advocate or, or mouthpiece, but to actually start building a research team that would work on on the on the problems and would try to understand and build technology that is usable here. And that's why I went to this uh, foundation. Uh, Fundación
0: Sadowski, uh, You worked for five years there, uh, kind of building these programs and running the right. internal R&D projects over there. That was a government agency
1: that was partly a government agency, it depended on on the the Ministry of Science and Technology and uh, on the Chamber of uh, the Software Industry in Argentina. So those two were the parent entities of the foundation.
0: And you spent five years there. Has that nervousness or that risk that your Argentina government networks, maybe critical infrastructure there, uh, uh, could be at major risk change? Do you th- has things changed in the five years that makes you think that the com- the country is properly prepared?
1: No, I wouldn't say the country is properly prepared. I think that it's like very very far away from that. Uh, I think the awareness has uh, has been raised, uh, not because of me, because of probably the Snowden uh, revelations and leaks, and because of the events that happened, and because cybersecurity is now a topic that is discussed at the top level uh, entities and and the top level uh, authorities of different countries. But uh, so I am uh, <clears throat> I am not satisfied with the results. But I wasn't, expect, I wasn't expecting to change, uh, to, to produce a big change. I was just expecting to plant a seed of working on practical uh, issues, developing technology and exposing it to the rest uh, of the world, to the rest of the country and to the rest of the world, and to work on topics that I deemed it were uh, interesting, or that were worth uh, exploring, such as the Android application landscape and I focus on Android we focus on Android uh, because the, here in Argentina the uh, market share of the iPhone is uh,
0: irrelevant when you say irrelevant it's it there, there's no ad- iPhone adoption there very very small
1: very very small yes
0: and yes, that, that's an economic thing
1: that's an economic thing because iPhones are very expensive here and there's not many options, not, not many inexpensive options and they are not sold directly by Apple here, so... So you
0: have a monoculture there where if someone wants to target Argentina, Android is, is probably the best place to start.
1: Yes, uh, but, it, but I'm not talking about nation states even. It, no,
0: no, no, I'm is, talking about just regular security threats yeah, against everyday Android users. It,
1: exactly. All right, let I me ask you
0: that. some quick hit questions as it relates to that. Yes. Uh, and, and we can get into it. but would you put your and I just asked this question to Sinan Erin, who is you know a, a, a veteran like you in the, in the same space, mm-hmm. Would you put your mom or my mom on, um, on, 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 on the internet with an Android device to do uh, financial transactions out of the box without any sort of uh, uh, modifications?
1: uh it doesn't matter because she would do it anyway but (laughs) i would try not to i would try to convince her not to do that but i would probably fail at that
0: right but which 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 tells us that there there are millions of people running around in argentina and the rest of the world doing banking and financial transactions on an android device that we both know they should not be doing especially an android device out of the box if you don't have the technical skills to configure it and manipulate it in ways that to make it secure.
1: Oh, yes, totally. And there have been already several incidents in Argentina, especially specifically, there have been been several incidents regarding that, uh, mostly because the apps that they run and the apps that are built for doing those things are really, really bad at uh, security.
0: Yeah and there's the, and, and and there's just a general sense of we don't know who's responsible for it is it is it is it Google is it the carrier is it the app maker and the, the ecosystem doesn't lend itself to a, a level of there's 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 a body that's responsible for keeping me secure correct what are you doing now at quarks lab and what is quarks lab
1: Workslab is a, it's a French infosec company that is specialized on, on products and services that are high value and, and focus on not the usual web app stuff, app layer stuff, but more low level, uh, uh, advanced and interesting uh, things like uh, auditing uh, embedded software or reverse engineering embedded software to find bugs or to fix bugs. Or, or working on on uh, cryptography implementations and reviews, mm-hmm. uh, uh, protecting software uh, to prevent uh, reverse engineering, um, Internet of Things uh, security, uh, auto mobile security, that sort of thing. It's uh, it's a services firm. It's a services and product firm. Okay, so services It's six years old, uh, it started as a services uh, firm, but uh, a few years ago, two years ago, it started developing products uh, as well. So now it's commercializing products uh, and um, and it's a small firm, it's about uh, 50, 50 people, it is uh, self-funded um it has uh, uh, most of uh, its focus is in europe but uh, we have some customers in the u.s and we have uh, several customers in asia uh, we have a subsidiary in japan and also a small office in argentina which i run with two guys uh, working here as well so and it's a it to me it's like uh uh i i I'm quite happy about it because the level of uh, of talent and 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 knowledge and and peers that I have reminds me of what Core used to be in the late '90s. So I'm quite happy about it.
0: Is it easier today to do uh, to do vulnerability research and handle disclosure and go through all that drama and controversy than it was back then, or the or or do you feel like the industry still, as a whole, has not matured? Uh,
1: enough. Well, it depends. Uh, what is your your target for research? Uh, if it's uh, enterprise software, desktop software that it's uh, uh, that it's uh, widely used or massively used, or is it the uh, software or components from uh, big IT vendors, then I would say yes, it is e- easy. It is easier than. Uh, 10 or 15 years ago to go through the process right, but if you look at research
0: but if you look at IOT vendors and some of the, 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 the oh, hundreds and of and thousands of companies popping up doing something some connected thing they're back where no. we were they're back where we were in 2001
1: they are back where we were in 1990. Well, not even 2001, 1995, let's say. So so, uh, so, in
0: many cases, a lot of those lessons learned have to be... Uh, it's important to keep those lessons learned in, in, in context when you're dealing with uh, like a lot of the embedded systems that you're now doing over at Quark's Lab. Yes,
1: yes, yes. It is, it is important to have those lessons and to, to, to understand how things evolve because the reactions that little get Uh, It's not just about the quality of the of the software or or the hardware or whatever you are uh, researching because that's that's some things that are uh, That are also I I believe in terms of mitigations or countermeasures They are lagging, but it's also about the maturity of the vendor uh, in handling vulnerability reports. So if you know What was what is the history with the major IT vendors and you learn how to? handle things or how to uh, how to manage a, a reporting process with them it will be very helpful because it's like going back in time when you talk to some vendors in others, in other industries
0: thank you very much Ivan. I think we're well past an hour um, mm-hmm. appreciate the time spent uh, on the podcast hopefully we can do it again uh, when your cough subsides and yeah <laughs> sorry
1: sorry about that thank you. Thank you, Ryan, for this. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks. We'll talk. All right. Bye.